listening to The Journey Podcast. The Journey is a college and young adult ministry of South Crest Baptist Church. We hope this podcast helps you find your greatest pleasure and purpose in Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now see, I, I, uh, I love the, the timing of this What is Truth series, and we're talking about evidence for God and his existence, and 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 how could a good God allow suffering? And, and this week, um, really focusing in on the person of Jesus. And I have to say, I, I, the, the timing, I think, is great because if you're anything like me, and I don't mean this in a mean way, but man, after the lost Saturday, I'm like, Jesus, I need you, right? Like, I think maybe there are some people on the fence, and after this past Saturday, it was so clear, like, I need Jesus, like, he's my only hope, like, and so I'm hoping that God has been moving in your hearts already, and, and he utilized that to show you, um, man, that even when you're up by an insane amount, when so little time left, um, that your hearts can still break. Say, hey, I'm just joking, I love you guys. That was a tough game. I'm really impressed with Tech for playing in that close, right, right? It's, it's a good game. I love you guys. I wear, I wear tech red shirts. Katie, Katie Ritchie has a conspiracy going that I don't like tech. And it's not actually true. Um, man, y'all. <laughs> closet, closet UT fan. Anyway, that's not true. Um, so, what a great intro, right? Something about Lubbock that I've kind of learned that maybe, that maybe you've learned um, is that Lubbock, the people of Lubbock, Lubbockites, are some of the most eating out group of people you will ever meet, all right? There, I'm pretty sure there are 20 Taco Bells in Lubbock. And at lunchtime, dinner, breakfast, whenever, there are 20 cars in the line, every single one of them. Like, Lubbock people love to eat out. And, and Lubbock people also love to claim the best restaurant, right? And, and I'm, I've only been here since January. You get kind of sucked into that, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like you all of a sudden have a passion about restaurants that you've never had before at any other time in life. Like it's, it's like, is it one guy or Orlando's, right? And that becomes a heated topic. Like families have split. They used together for Thanksgiving and Christmas. And now they don't because one of them wants Orlando's and one of them wants, you know what I'm saying? And so it's just crazy. And why are they having that for Thanksgiving anyway? That's another topic. All right. You can, you can go with, with Thai pepper, right? Or Thai Thai, right? And that can, that can be a topic of discussion. Or some people really like Capital Pizza. I'm a Dion's guy. You know what I mean? Like, I heard Capital Pizza was like the, the best thing since the manna that fell in the wilderness. You know, and, and I tried it. And I thought, one, you don't know much about the man in the wilderness, and it's not that good, all right? And so, but let, all jokes aside, how, how annoying is it, though, when, when someone takes it, like, too far, right? Like, they won't stop talking about it. Like, they're, they're trying to convince you, like, no, like, Thai pepper is the best. Like, it's authentic. Like, I hear them speaking Thai language. Like, I know it's the real thing. Like, it's for sure the best. And, like, it's like, whoa, man, chill out. Like, and he's like, that Thai pepper, it's the only way you can, you can have Thai food, period, you know? But there's a line, isn't there? Or like, it becomes like a funny thing, and, and, and then you're, you kind of cross that line. It be, 
can become annoying. And when people get passionate and make claims about certain things, really in any sphere in, in our lives, there, there's a line where it's just, okay, agree to disagree. And then it can become annoying. This person uh, can't, that this hypothetical person we're talking about, can enter a space to where they're so passionate about trying to convince you that the way that they think about this thing, that their way, the way that they're telling you is right, is, is not just right, it is the only way. And it can come across as arrogant, can it? In our day and age, to, to claim that you have the monopoly of all truth and wisdom, is that not seen as arrogant? But that is exactly what Christianity is claiming about Jesus. That's what Christianity is claiming about. It said that it is the one true religion. And it's like, man, is that, is that arrogant to say in 2020? Is it when there's all these other ways? All right, we use the funny restaurants, Dion's, Capital Pizza, whatever, but it just got serious, y'all. Like, with all the world's religions, Christianity is saying, hey, this is the only true religion. And so the question I want to pose to you tonight is why should we believe that Jesus is the only way? By raise of hand, do you feel like that's a fair question that you should ask at some point in your life? Why should we believe that Jesus is the only way? I was hoping for more hands. I'll give you another shot. By raise of hands, who thinks we could do that? Okay, sweet. I have a reason to stay up here and preach tonight instead of just going to Taco Villa. Another, another rep there, Taco Villa. Two weeks in a row, baby. Okay, so um, what, what you got to know, and here's what's important, is uh, me, some of the Journey staff, some of you have spent uh, an intentional amount of time on Tech's campus this year. Um, one time went out to LCU, but, but mainly it's been on Tech's campus. Um, and we're getting into these dialogues as we're trying to share the gospel. We're asking people how we can pray for them or letting them know about the journey. But we really want to get into dialogues and conversation. And, and here's something very interesting. Um, now, I feel like in just a few times doing that, when I'm going through an apologetic series, I'm not just thinking, well, what? from books I've read, I think this is what college students think. No, like real stories are happening, real dialogues about Jesus and who he is. And, and twice last week, I ran into students as we were there and John chapter 14, verse six came up. And, and here's why I was talking to one girl and she was talking about a, um, a distant friend that she has, a friend of a friend who um, had passed away recently, had died. And I kind of asked her from that, like, what do you think about the afterlife? And she said, I, I believe that all people um, go to heaven. That really doesn't matter. We all go to heaven. And, and uh, there was a, another guy who we, we were talking and he claimed to be, um, have some sort of affiliation with Catholicism. But as we talked, it, it was really more clear that he was what you'd call a, a universalist or a um, religious pluralist in the sense of that really all always lead to heaven. And, and to both of them, I, I quoted John chapter 14, verse six. And I said, hey, I, I, I don't want to have this argument with you, but if you're claiming Christianity in any form, if you're claiming that you believe in Jesus, what you got to know is that the Jesus, the Bible said in John chapter 14, verse six, that I am the way, the truth and the life and no one can come to the father except through me. And so the author of our faith, like, is it fair to call Jesus the author of our faith, right? 
Like, is it fair also that if you want to know what Christianity is, that you would look at Jesus's words first? Is it not fair? Even if you don't agree with it, like to examine our faith, look at the author of the faith, right? We do that with every other book. And so uh, we have those conversations and, and both of them seem puzzled. They don't know really not to do with that. Not in like a mean way, got you stumped. You could just tell they haven't thought about this before. Open the word of God, read John chapter 14, verse six. So here's my approach tonight. Why should we believe that Jesus is the only way? First, I want you, if, you're li- if you'd like to go deeper, if you want something that's in depth that takes a lot longer than this time here, I want you to check out our five series um, on our Journey Topics podcast. We looked at five core truths a Christian must believe. And in that section, there is, in that series, we did a, one sermon called Christ Alone. And it is very, like I went into depth of a lot of different religions, what they say about Jesus. We're gonna do that just a little bit tonight. Another thing I want you to do is look at the book, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, written by an atheist trying to disprove the resurrection, ended up a sold out follower of Jesus, like a pastor, author, writer, like pretty cool. So check that out. Y'all good with me? Y'all track me this far? So my approach tonight, I thought about what, about this opportunity, all right? So kind of enter this drama with me, enter this narrative with me. What if me and you got to stand in the middle of our campus and the whole student population was listening and they were asking the question, why should we believe that Jesus is the only way? And you've got about, you've got the Bible in hand? (laughs) You have a few arguments in your pocket in 35 minutes to prove your case. That's not very long. Looks like I got less than that as I'm looking at the timer back there. So I want you to think about that and let's enter into it. And I wanna tell you, I think if I only had this long, this is what I would say. So one, I would, I would enter this conversation, hey, there's something that, that you can't deny about Jesus. It doesn't matter who you are, where you've been. It doesn't matter what sort of philosophy of life you want to adhere to. You have to realize that he was a real historical person. To deny such is to lose all integrity. And B, you have to realize that he made some major claims about himself, such as that he is God in flesh. But one of the biggest, again, is John chapter 14, verse six. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. That Christianity is the only true religion. If he claimed to be the only way and that no one can come to God except through him, why believe that? What is the compelling evidence? Again, remember the scene. We have an opportunity here. Enter this drama, enter this narrative to make our case. I would turn them first to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. You can join me if you like. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. This is the Apostle Paul. He's writing to the church at Corinth. Y'all have been in 1 Corinthians, so you know this, this letter. He says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So Paul has received the gospel. He's received the essence of what the core doctrines of Christianity are. And he said, I've received this. I'm going to deliver it to you now that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Why should we believe that Jesus is the only way? With the Bible in hand, 
we should believe that Jesus is the only way because he truly, like actually, really died for his followers. And so this is so core to what Christians believe. Paul calls it a first importance. He could have gone into a big uh, theological explanation for uh, some obscure doctrine, but no, he says Christ has died, Christ has risen. Those are key things that he wants to bring to our attention This should be like a creed or a doctrinal statement, like we believe that Jesus died on the cross. And it's a a very unique thing to have a God that will die for those who worship him. It's it's pretty revolutionary. As I mentioned, I believe it's one of the most compelling reasons to follow him as the only way. So y'all hang in there with me. I I want want to pose a question for you. I want you to ask yourself honestly. And you can, y'all have a sick sense of humor, as I discovered last year about poor Primrose dying if she went to the Hunger Games, all right? And so I hope y'all don't take this as funny, but you can if you'd like, all right? Um, (laughs) Who in your life would you be willing to die for? Maybe you think of family members, friends, boyfriend, girlfriend, fiance, right? People that you love, probably what's most important if you die for them, you got to know they love you, right? That, that's pretty important. You're close to, you have a functional relationship, so probably not that guy that ripped out your heart and put it on the ground and stomped it, right? Probably, you probably wouldn't die for that guy. Probably not the girl who ghosted you, and now when you see her in public, she acts like you don't exist, right? Like, probably not that person. Probably not a biological parent that you no longer have a relationship with because of just some bad things that happen. Probably not anyone who's done anything to hurt you, um, to say bad things about you, in front of you, behind your back, whatever. You probably wouldn't die or be willing to die for anyone that has kind of made themselves your functional enemy. Is that fair? Yeah. Here's what's crazy. Again, enter, enter the drama, realize where, where we would be in, in, in giving this defense. We, we would say, hey, look, that, that's good. I, I kind of agree with you. I would have trouble dying for anyone else. But Jesus identifies who he dies for a little differently. Like jump over everyone to Luke chapter 23, verse 34. I want to show you this. Luke 23, verse 34. I'm going to start in verse 32. This is the scene on the cross. Two others who were criminals were, let, criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, okay, he's saying this to the people that are having him crucified. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And then Romans 5 will tell us that Jesus died for us actually while we were still his enemies. The scene of the cross in the gospel, it cites people yelling at Jesus, making fun of him, mocking him, spitting at him, and making themselves in that moment clear enemies and totally hostile to everything that he was. And what's crazy is it's those exact people. It's for his enemies that he prays this prayer on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And here's the kicker, as my dad would say growing up. He was totally sinless and without fault. He actually came to offer salvation to those same people, and they killed him. Guys, I am a 
a sinful man with so many faults and, and so much pride and so many things to work out and a, a young leader who makes dumb decisions sometimes that you guys have to just give me grace for. Like, we can go on and on and on and on. I'm a, I'm a man full of faults. And the, the, the rage that, that can dwell up within me when just someone gives me the slightest lack of respect is, is ridiculous in light of the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, our Creator, the perfect, all-righteous, holy, beautiful, majestic Messiah, sinless, faultless, everything, can look at the people that killed him and say, Father, forgive them. I know what they're doing is terrible, but they don't even know what they're doing. What kind of God is it that dies for his followers, followers even while they're still his enemies? Who dies for his followers even though they're showing no visible, clear signs at all that they ever intend to follow him? What, what kind of love is this? So friends, wherever you are, if you're in the seat of the skeptic, which we have invited you to sit in tonight, if you're in the seat of someone who's been a believer for a long time, be compelled by the love of the cross. A God that dies for his enemies as they're killing him, pleading, Father, forgive them. They, they don't know what they're doing. Have mercy upon them. You've never seen this type of love before, and you truly will find it nowhere else, friends. This is Jesus, the Son of God, the one who died for our sins. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. But how does the song go? But still, he freely gave himself away for us. We should have been totally disqualified. But we're, we find ourselves in Christ as beneficiaries of sacrificial love, beneficiaries of an adoption we didn't even earn. He makes us children of God by reconciling us through the blood his very own blood on the cross, paying the price for the sins that we committed against God, though a sinless, perfect man, God-man in the flesh, dying for us. And he did it gladly for his people. The Bible says, for the joy set before him. He did it gladly for us. We just stop and pray for a minute. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for such love. I, there's people in here that believe it. God, there's some people here on the fence and my gosh, just pray in your grace and mercy to open their eyes and their hearts and be compelled by this love. It's at least compelled and intrigued. And I, I believe it is true. So I thank you, Father, for such love. In Jesus' name, amen. Someone in the crowd yells, Hey, death isn't, your, your God died. That's not very impressive to me. Now you know the rest of the story. That's kind of a cheap shot, right? You can get, well, what are you talking about? The resurrection. Okay, I'll, I'll field that, right? Okay, your God died. That's not very impressive. No, what's, what's impressive <laughs> is that <laughs> when you look at when Jesus died and you look way back a thousand years before Psalm 22 prophesied the way he would die. Remember how it read there in that scene in Luke that they cast lots for his garments? Psalm 22, baby, written a thousand years before that happened. 600 years before crucifixion was ever invented. Y'all want another one? Let's read another one. Gotta find it first, Rhodes. It's because I went too far down. Isaiah 53 
written 700 years before Christ and 300 years before crucifixion was even invented. Isaiah 53. Quoting, talking about what's happening to Jesus. By his, by his wounds we are healed. Go read it. Go check it out for yourself. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. What's not impressive is that he died. It's that these are Messianic prophecies predicted so long before. Like I told you a couple weeks ago, the chances of this happening, of Jesus even fulfilling eight, though he fulfilled over 110, of Jesus just fulfilling eight prophecies, the chances of that are, are like one in something like quadrillion. It's crazy. Fill the whole state of Texas with silver dollars up to your knee. Mark a black check on just one of those silver dollars. Throw a man out in Texas with a blindfold on. He happens to find that one silver dollar with a black check on it. The chances of that, of him doing that, are the same chances of Jesus not being who he said he was. That's crazy. So it's not... (laughs) It's not impressive that he died as that it predicted his death and that he did all these things exactly the way texts that were written 500, 600, 1,000 years before, exactly the way they said that they would happen. And then there's something called the swoon theory that Jesus didn't really die. And in, in, in the Islamic text called the Quran, it, it says that he didn't really die. And it's been popularized. And, and actually what the problem is, is that to say he didn't really die is a really big slam to the Jews. Because if they did anything right during Jesus's messianic reign, is that God used them to kill Jesus so that he could be the sacrifice for our sins. You see that now. If they did one thing right, if they killed this blasphemer, this guy who, they, who came offering salvation to him that they rejected, even to say, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And so what you see as you read the gospel narratives is that the Jews never tried to say that he didn't die. They tried to figure out some conspiracy for the empty tomb. They had no idea how to deal with that. And so what you need to realize is to say that Jesus never died is preposterous because the people that need to, that have to, that truly do hate Jesus the most and everything he was, the Jews will even say, no, we killed him. He's dead. I saw it. And then you look at the science behind the crucifixion and that medical experts examine it for us. And they're like, hey, you know the 39 lashes that he got before that point? Yeah, that, that often killed people. Just getting that, just getting whipped 39 times because guess what? The Roman soldiers sometimes lost count, not because they were bad at math, because sometimes they got a little excited. And so just that alone should, should be able to, to kill a man, but it didn't. And then Jesus carried up his cross up to Golgotha, all right, all the way up. Then was nailed, it's actually right, about right here, okay, it says his hands about right here, right here, down here, y'all have seen I've seen it, nailed. And then the crucifixion began. And what medical experts can tell us is that actually, but if you look at how many times he was lashed, it wasn't going to take him very long to die. That's one of the, the critiques of Islamic scholars. Well, how dead do you want him? Like he just received 39 plus lashes and had to carry a cross up a mountain. Like, and, then he's, and then he's on a cross. And they say that most people from a crucifixion what happens is the way that they're hanging, they, they're kind of having to lift themselves up to breathe, and then they can't, they can't just go back down. And so over time, what happens is the body kind of freaks out, and, and fluid begins to build up around the heart and the lungs. And most people who were crucified either died from a heart attack or suffocation or, or a wicked combination of both. And that's pretty gory, right? Like, man, that dude went there. <laughs> I went there to show you that... Any medical expert with any integrity at all 
looking at the facts will tell you that there is no possible way, there's no imaginable way you can conjure up that he didn't genuinely, genuinely die. And so when we look at the horrors of what happened to Jesus, let's flip this on its head, friends. It's, it's good to know what happened to him. What medical experts are saying, it was so bad that he had to have died. You know the word excruciating? You know where that word came from? And you know Latin? They had to come up with the word excruciating as a word to describe the cross. X out of cruciating, cross. You see that? So an, a word was invented to describe how bad the cross was, but let's flip this on its head. That's what Jesus was willing to go through so that you might be reconciled to God, that you might be forgiven. And he did it for followers like you and me who weren't even alive yet and followers back then who were shaking their fists, yelling, crucify him, crucify him, or scared and hiding like Peter, like a little boy who doesn't want to get a spanking, you know, for followers that just left him, who wanted him killed or who didn't even exist yet. He went through that. I don't see how you entirely reject that Jesus up to this point. So we should believe that Jesus is the only way because he truly died for his followers. And then we fast forward to something else because a lot of you know the rest of the story. You know there's more to discuss. I want you to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm gonna do that. I didn't save my spot. so how fast I can get there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 20. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. That's a mouthful, I'll tell you. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ, y'all listen to this. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But there comes verse 20, Christians. You can breathe a little bit. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And so remember, we're back to this scene of, of we're in the center of the campus. People are listening in. They're asking this question. They're still not convinced. And that's fair because right now all we have is a dead God. And that's what Paul is saying. If the resurrection didn't happen, let's pack up and go home. Connect groups are canceled. Y'all don't have to worry about late nights every Tuesday. Y'all go do whatever you want. Live in whatever way you live. The singleness and dating and marriage series, that's out the window. First, second, third week, everything is done. All right, let's burn down the church if the resurrection hasn't happened. There is no point. That's what Paul's saying. We should be people. I'm not burning down the church. Everybody goes like, whoa, man, since your first night, you're like, let's get out of here. <laughs> all right, not burning down the church. All right, but Paul is saying we would be people most of all to be pitied. Like you ever have pity for someone? Like, oh man, there he is. He comes every day. And like pity is such a demeaning thing. So if the resurrection didn't happen, then there's no point. But 
Here's the thing, our faith does hinge on it. Christians do believe it happened. It's probably the most compelling proof that we can point to that Jesus must be the only way. That's what Lee Strobel in the case for Christ was doing. He said, if I can just prove the resurrection, I can, I can just, uh, Christianity's done, it's over. By the way, that was advice of a Christian friend of his. He's like, just prove the resurrection. So for Christians, the resurrection is our anchor and our evidence. So we, we, we need to maybe... Don't you think it's fair to, to find out why we believe in the resurrection? Yes? It, it, it's kind of like, man, I don't, I don't know if they, they did it, but like a, a few, how many years ago is it? No, this was probably a decade ago. I went to my first Texas Tech football game, all right? And it's at the beginning of the game. I'm having a, a nice, peaceful evening as kickoff is about to start. And there comes kickoff, and then tortillas start flying around my head. And I'm like, why are people throwing away food? You know, that's like my first question, really. Like, you know, and, and I know it's been kind of outlawed a little bit in some ways, but you bet you can't really stop it, right? And so wouldn't you agree that having tortillas thrown in a tech game is, is a necessity? Yeah, it's a good thing. Without the tortillas, like, what are we even doing, right? All right, that's an important part of tradition, all right? You gotta calm down. <laughs> Tech games without tortillas, all right? On the record, not gonna go if that's, that's the case. But that's, that's how Christianity is, is without the resurrection. Like there's, there's no point in it anymore. And so I want us to examine for a minute, why do we believe it? In comes the, the, the song of the skeptic. I, I, don't, I don't believe in in the supernatural. That's why I don't, there's no, there is no such thing as resurrection. There's anything that, that I, I can't see and I don't, I don't believe in. And I'm like, man, your denial of the existence of something doesn't legitimize your unbelief. There are remote tribes yet to be discovered that would deny that America exists. And here we are. There are complex aspects of, of metaphysics and scientific discoveries that if you were to ask me today, I'd be like, ah, oh, probably not. And we discover them 20 years later. It's like, well, look, you're there. Your denial of the existence of something doesn't legitimize your unbelief. It's an assertion without any ground. It's, it's the pudding without the proof. Y'all catch that? Okay. And so then people will say, going back to this, that, that the disciples stole Jesus' dead body from, from the tomb. And so this is just funny because in Matthew 27, verse 65, what Pilate does is he tells the guards around the tomb to literally make it as secure as possible. Professional soldiers that their job is to defend and to offend, to kill. He tells them to do that. So they sealed the tomb shut. They had professional Roman soldiers guarding it. The disciples stole him? Really? The disciples? Have you read about them? They're going to take down Roman guards? And if they did, why did the guards not have any signs of harm to them? Why did they not report harm? Why, why didn't they make up a better story? They didn't claim to be attacked or falling asleep. They were perplexed. They were like, we don't know what happened to him. He's gone. And then another thing is, is that after the religious leaders discovered the empty tomb, you know what they did? They got together and conspired. It's in a group called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is made of Pharisees and Sadducees. Let me help you out. What is a Sadducee? Let's break that up. Sad, S-A-D, you see. They don't believe in the resurrection, so they're very sad. You see? You got it? My wife wasn't all for that, but I was like, I think they'll like it. I think they'll like it. All right. So they don't even believe at all that a resurrection is possible. 
Like they're, they're like the, the person saying, like, if I can't see it, I don't believe it. Okay. You know, like they're, they're making an assertion without any logical fact. They, they've altogether denied the existence of something like a resurrection. They're saying there is no resurrection from the dead. And so if it happened, it, they would just like, like misfire and just like, you know, fall over. Like they wouldn't know what to do. And they didn't know what to do. So they misfired and made up something ridiculous. And so even the people that were conspiring, the Jewish leaders that were conspiring to figure out what had happened, there was a significant group of them that they not only didn't believe that the resurrection can happen, they couldn't have let it happen in their worldview. They wouldn't have even believed the proof. And then we looked at there were 500 witnesses of the risen Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 6 Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. I want you to notice something. Most of whom are still alive. Okay, so when Paul wrote this, you know what they did? They did what you and I did. Let's pretend we receive a letter. Like, um, someone in, like, the South Coast or something has has passed away, but we receive a letter that they're alive. And like, 500 people have seen him. Are y'all not gonna investigate that? Like, I would, like, start asking, okay, who, who are these people? 500, are you serious? They, they did that. You know that, right? Like, that's, that's common sense. And, and Paul's saying 500 people witnessed Jesus alive. And after they investigated this, if they didn't come up, conjure up about 500 people, probably more, they're going to make sure this doesn't make it into the canon of Scripture. They're like, nuh-uh. We're not, we're not going to let this, this doesn't pass. That's how letters, that's how truth, that's how doctrines of Jesus worked. They were constantly tested. That's why you see names of people all the time. Like, is this true? Is that, yeah, 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 that was him. This is all compelling, says the skeptic. By the way, you can't win anyone over with arguments. You can't make someone's eyes open and their heart open and make them a believer by argument. That's the Holy Spirit. But, but you can point them to the word of truth. You can point them to God's word. And so that's, that's why when the skeptic in the conversation comes, someone from the crowd yells, hey, look, I know you, you quoted John chapter 14, verse six, But Jesus didn't really mean he was the only way. That's a matter of interpretation. What you're doing, you're being a religious, fundamentalist, Baptist bigot. Basically, all religions account for Jesus in the same way. And I would say first, hey, thanks for the compliment. I really, I feel better about myself. Thank you for that. Um, That is the name I've always wanted to wear. It's religious bigot. I appreciate that. Man, yep, that's me. Nailed it. (laughs) In all seriousness, um, I would say, you know what, about that interpretation thing and what Jesus really meant or what, is this really up for grabs? You know, using the scientific method and with, with language, which is linguistics, right? The science of language. We, we actually can open, not a, an English Bible, but this is, this is a, a Greek New Testament. I've got it in my hand. I, I studied it. It's a scholarly Greek Testament, so it shows nerdy things like 
specific pronouns and like what they mean. It's just, it's, it's such an, a Bible nerd fest going on right here, okay? But what I'm saying to you is this is the language, it's the copy of original manuscripts. So this is what was first written about Jesus. This is the, the, the opportunity that someone had, the first opportunity that someone had to write and record Jesus's life and John 14, 6 was in this language. Y'all tracking with me? So when I make, explain that so you know how cool this is. And guess what? It's not me, although I can, but we have someone in this room who actually studies Greek, not in a religious university that has, maybe you can say that has an agenda, but studies Greek at Texas Tech University that you could certainly say does not have an agenda like for, for, for Christ, like a seminary would. It's just a, a secular Greek class, but we have someone in the room that can actually read this for us and show us. Are y'all interested in that? Would y'all like to hear that read? Yeah? Okay. Hey, y'all give it up for Clarice McKinnon. Come on up here. Yeah, keep clapping. Come on. This is awesome. So what, how, how long have you been taking Greek? Um, this is my first semester. She said it's her first semester? Okay. This is, it makes the point even better, right? So a first semester Greek student. Okay. Um, the Gospel of John... Not very complicated Greek, okay? I didn't take a whole lot of years either, so one full year. It's going to read this for us out loud in the Greek language. All right, there it is. I'm going to let you read it. I'm going to ask you a question, a few questions. Right there, starting verse six. Legai ato ho inosos ego emi ho odos hai e alethia hai e zen odais erkotai pros ton patera I-N-C-M-O-N. Nice. Y'all give it up for her. Give it up. Okay, I have a few questions. And so, um, is it talking about Jesus? Did it say Jesus somewhere in there? Yes. Okay. It, it actually says um, the Jesus. There's an Omicron. Girl, get that book. Just tell me. Show me that book. There's an Omicron in the Greek language with um, a breathing accent. And in front, of the, in front of important names, they'll put the, which is right in front of Jesus. You hear that? They put in an Omicron, an article for the... Yeah, he's, he's the Jesus. He's the Jesus. Yeah. That's good stuff. Okay, cool. I'm going to lose some spot. So, so it says Jesus. Does he say, I am, or does he say someone is, or... He says, I am. Which is ego e me, right? Yes. Okay. Ego. Yeah. I, I, we talked about this. My Greek pronunciation is weird. I had a professor that decided, I'm going to teach you a pronunciation that no one else does. I'm like... Seriously? It makes me sound like I just sounded. All right. So now what is, does it say the way? Yes. What is the way? Is it right there? Is it odos? Yes. Okay. Does it, does it say truth? Yes. Okay. And does it say life? Yes. Does it, does it actually say no one can come to the father except yes. through him? Okay. Yes? yes. Amen. High five, sister. Thank you so much. Y'all give it up for her. Does that sound like it's a matter of interpretation? Does it? First semester Greek student. We're not talking about, didn't, you don't have a doctorate in Greek, but could read a simple, simple language. It's, it's not complicated language. It's not mysterious language. 
Just the way it's written in your English, as, 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 much, as easy as it is to understand in, in English language, you read for us, thank you so much, sister, to show us Jesus really meant. <laughs> it means though the way. He is the Jesus with the way. He is the truth. He has the life. And no one can come to the Father except through him. And so what I say to my friend is like, look, if you, if you want to make a claim that that uh, man, all religious systems end up in the same place or whatever. Um, man, I, I, I look at a, a conversation around the table that could, could happen. It's, there's a Christian, there's a Mormon, there's a Jehovah's Witness, and there's a Muslim. And they begin discussing things and what they think about Jesus because they all have genuinely high thoughts of Jesus. First, make sure I get this right, we're messing up. I'm going to make sure I get this right. I get Jehovah's Witness and Mormons mixed up. Sorry. First, the Mormon says, Jesus is the spirit brother of Satan. Then the Jehovah's Witness says, Michael, the archangel. The Muslim says, Jesus is not God, but he's a great prophet. And the Christian says, Jesus is God and the creator of the whole universe. Quoting from Colossians 1, John 1, Hebrews 1, 2 John 2, 7, and Isaiah 43, 10. The Bible says that Jesus created Satan and Michael, so that's a different Jesus than the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses. The Bible says Jesus is God and creator, the Messiah, and the Muslims say just a prophet, so that's a different Jesus. So in this scenario of, of all these supposed religions that believe in Jesus, the problem is, is that we have four different Jesuses that are totally, mutually incompatible. And so even if they believe their Jesus died on the cross, three out of four of them are believing in the wrong Jesus. And only one of them is believing in the Messiah, the one who can actually take away the sins of the whole world. Only one of them is believing in the Messiah, the Son of God, who would have the power to raise from the dead. And so I asked this friend of mine, the person who, who says this, what Jesus do you follow? The only Jesus that can save you from your sins via his death on the cross and resurrection from the dead is the Jesus of the objectively, scientifically, linguistically proven John 14, chapter 6. That's the Jesus we're talking about. The Jesus who can speak for himself because he is the author of our faith. So we should believe that Jesus is the only way because the tomb is empty, friends. The Jesus of the Bible, Bible, the Son of God, the creator of all things, has conquered death on our behalf by rising from the dead. Amen? So what is at stake tonight, friends? What, what would be at stake to deny that Jesus is actually not the only way. Like, what, what would you be sacrificing in that? I would say eternity is at stake. The salvation of our souls. Jesus is the only one who, who offers a realistic salvation. It's people that will say, man, you know what, I think all... Religions are kind of like a, a mountain and God's at the top of the mountain and you can kind of take your own path and all, all paths will eventually lead to, to heaven. The problem with that 
is that it assumes we have the ability to climb up the mountain. It assumes that we actually, using the metaphor, have the ability and the strength to, to walk this path, the, the path of life without tremendous hardship and basically coming to the end of ourselves. In other words, it's not really realistic. And so every other religious system wants to tell you to work your way up to God, doing various things, various prayers, various sacrifices, being in good relationships with everybody, kind of keeping your yin and yang intact, whatever it may be. And, and the God of the Bible is realistic because he comes down to us and he's like, they're too weak. They can't climb up the mountain. And he picks us up, throws us over his shoulder and carries us up back to the mountain. And if you don't like that illustration, it can also be like a massive bridge that you think, I'll just walk over to God. That's all I've got to do. I've just got to sort of ease my way out. Oh, look at that. There he is over there. And what happens is that you're walking across the bridge and there all, the, all of a sudden there becomes this massive chasm that's separating you from God. That's why I love Phil Wickham's song, How Great the Chasm That Stands Between Us, How High the Mountain I Cannot Climb. And once you discover, even in that illustration, you can't bridge the gap. It's too far. It's too wide. But friends, let me tell you the hope tonight. Jesus bridges the gap. I'm going to ask the band to come up. Jesus' death and resurrection actually meet the number one need. Y'all listen, I know the band's coming up, that can be distracting sometimes. Jesus' death and resurrection actually meet the number one need that we cannot meet for ourselves. That is forgiveness of sin before a holy, righteous God, defeating the power of sin and death forever. That's the one need we actually can't meet. We, we actually don't know what to do about that in our sin. And that's exactly what's accomplished at the cross, friends. That's why eternity is at stake. What's at stake? The salvation of our souls is at stake. And Jesus is saying, he is the way. At a bare minimum tonight, friends, wherever you're at, you at least have to interact with that. That you could be wrong if you're following another way. That the Jesus of the Bible, who also lovingly warns us and teaches us that there is heaven and there's hell, and that the, any other way besides through him leads to that hell and that separation from him forever as a righteous new punishment for what we deserve as sinners, but instead, he bridges that gap for all those who would believe in him. So never talk about hell without talking about what Jesus did. Amen? It's not my agenda to scare you. Eternity is at stake because the Jesus of the Bible, the way, the truth, and the life can provide for you all that you need for forgiveness of sins, no fear of death and actual hope, eternal hope, living hope. And so we're, to reject him is to lose everything, yes, but to believe in him is to gain everything. The one who says that there is only way, there is only one way, is the same one who makes that way. Jesus bridges the gap. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this truth. God, I ask that you work in the hearts.
minds of everyone in this room, those who are confident in who Jesus is and following him for many, many years, or even just a little bit, God, I pray that you would encourage their hearts with this truth. For those in the room that are sitting in the seat of the skeptic, that maybe, God, you would move in their heart to maybe compel them by the love of Jesus to, to look at some of the facts that we can present and at least, God, work in their heart um, to be intrigued of who you are because, God, you're worthy of worship. We, we must respond to the claims of you, Jesus. And so that's what, God, we are so grateful that you're inviting us into now. We accept your invitation right now to respond and, and worship of you, God, to be compelled by your love, to be in awe of your love you actually made a way uh, our, you, our creator we can actually talk to you through song and worship you through song and so we, we do that now in Jesus name, amen we hope you are encouraged by today's podcast if you'd like to learn more about The Journey check us out on Instagram or Facebook at The Journey LBK thanks for listening